The Way Out Podcast, episode 235. It's good to be here today. My name is Michael. My full legal name is Michael Patrick Wambadi Gadeska O'Connor. I come from the Hongkwan Oyate, the Yankton Sioux Tribe of South Dakota. I lived here in Sioux City, Iowa. It's been since February 15th in 1995, and that's uh, a little bit more than 26 years since I came crawling through the doors of a 12-step program and have my life. I always say that I was I was born with a broken heart because I really feel as though that were true. Mom was a heroin addict. Um, Dad came back from Vietnam War and died in a fiery car crash on the Yankton Sioux Reservation in an intersection called the Six Mile Corner. Life started off pretty rough. I was just a baby. In fact, I didn't find out up until maybe five years ago what he looked like. And Native Americans historically um, have served in the armed forces at a higher rate than any other ethnic group. One of the most traumatic things has happened was I, I became separated from my brother and sister. And I remember at that time, it felt like life had become too painful. And I remember at that time, choosing to shut myself off from emotions to mm. numb myself from from emotions because it was too much now what we now know is that you cannot selectively numb i was also numbing myself off from the ability to express love and accept love ex mm. accept kindness into my life so they say you cannot selectively numb when you're numb in this part of yourself, you're also numb in, you know, those other aspects too. And that's why it really became hard for me to love myself. That feeling of fear always was there. It never left me. The only tools that I had was to keep it in. And that just led to more sort of self-destructive thoughts and self-destructive behaviors, unhealthy behaviors. As a child, I those manifested themselves, such as I, I have a criminal record from far, far back as I can remember. To me, it felt like since life was so out of control, it gave me a sense of control, I believe. Mm. Not only was it very damaging to receive and be, be the victim of abuse, but also to watch other family members other my brother and sister and hear that being done. And I'll never forget the effect that it had on me. Because for me, I remember when I drank, I then went outside into the, the front of the dorm. There was a large porch and there was a line of girls there. And I had been so scared of girls. I couldn't talk to them. I couldn't even talk to guys. I couldn't talk to teachers. So for the first time in my life, in a lot of ways, I felt normal. Because all that dialogue was shut off. That was preventing me from experiencing life, shutting off that fear switch. I was smooth. I remember the effect. I was, I was like, I was for the first time in my life, I was, I was saying funny things and, and almost like a silent movie. I remember the, the gals, you know, across the porch laughing at the things that I had said. So I, for the first time in my life, I felt in a lot of ways normal because that fear was gone. I think I was hooked. I didn't know it at the time, 
But I think that's what really that experience of fear leaving me. I compared my insides to everybody's outside. So I was sort of hostage to whatever it is that I saw was cool. Very low self-esteem. The drinking increased, the drugging increased. I had been obsessing about suicide for years, but the misery doesn't stay the same. It, it is on the increase. The depression is on the increase. Snowball effect leaks um, out of control, but then life has always been out of control. Well, I hit rock bottom. I don't ever want to forget. That's what woke her up. I didn't get to say goodbye to her. I never want to forget this is what my addiction and alcoholism does for me. I never want to forget this moment. And that's what woke her up. And she was the love of my life and I was her hero. And so I remember I took a deep breath and I let it out. And now that I look back on it, it felt like I was inhaling God's will, creator's will, whatever you want to call it. And I was exhaling my will. And even though that I was going to prison, I felt free. That's what I know what it takes. When things are going rough, I still remember how it felt at that point when I did that. There was a physical sensation. There was a spiritual feeling that I never felt that I'm done. I want to go with you now. I start to experience things for the first time in my life again. For the first time in my life, I am grateful. And that shows itself. Welcome Way Out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast partners with All Recovery Rings and AllRecoveryRings.com, where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's AllRecoveryRings.com. The Way Out Podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Finally, a word of caution. This podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this edition of The Way Out, we've got an incredibly special interview with a person in long-term recovery from the Native American indigenous community. 
His Native American name is Wambadi Gadeska, which translates to Spotted Eagle, and he's otherwise known as Michael O'Connor. Michael's journey through and to this point in his recovery is both strikingly similar to and profoundly different to so many we've had the sacred opportunity to share. So many of us can relate to adverse childhood experiences and the trauma that can haunt us. So many of us can relate to the allure and vicious and seemingly unbreakable spell alcohol, drugs, and addictive behaviors can have on us. Indeed, many of us can relate to reaching spiritual and emotional bankruptcy and the unmistakably awful feeling that accompanies it. The truly fortunate among us have had the experience immediately following of a profound and sincere surrender and a genuine willingness to truly change and do whatever it takes to get better. Not too many of us, however, can truly understand how growing up as an indigenous person in America complicates life. Likely very few of us can relate to the underprivileged conditions that are pervasive in Native American communities. Very few of us can truly relate to the experience of not seeing anyone that looks like you in recovery. No doubt many of us thought we were unique and different, but the astonishingly low rates of recovery in the indigenous community make it very difficult for those in the indigenous community to find someone from their own community to relate to and serve as a mentor in recovery. Michael has taken this on as an important part of his own recovery to provide an example to those in his community that enduring, meaningful, and rewarding recovery is possible. Despite the very real differences in his journey to recovery, we get the unshakable feeling that the spiritual and recovery truths that Michael so humbly shares with us are without a doubt universal and indeed achievable to all who earnestly seek them. So listen up. Michael O'Connor, or even better known as Wamba D. Gadeska, Spotted Eagle, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us here on the Way Out podcast. I am over the moon excited to get into a variety of really, really important subject matter with you get into your story. But before we do any of that, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast? Tell us a little bit about who you are, how long you've been sober, and we will get started. Okay. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, we've, I would say, Pidama Edo, um, Charlie, Michazeki, um, Michael, um, Patrick Wambadi Gadeska O'Connor. Um, um, so I say, it's good to be here today. My name is Michael. My full legal name is Michael Patrick Wambadi Gadeska O'Connor. I come from the Hongtuanoyate, the Yankton Sioux tribe of South Dakota. I live here in Sioux City, Iowa. Um, and I've, I'm 
it's been since February 15th in 1995, and that's uh, a little bit more than 26 years since I came crawling through the doors of the 12-step program and have, uh, have, uh, have my life. And so, yes, I feel really grateful to be here today, Charlie. And, I, and again, prior to us going live, we're, I thank you for this service for the people. And 26 years of continuous sobriety is no accident, if you're anything like me. So congratulations on that, Michael. That is, in fact, a miracle. And I understand you are, as I am, a product of the 12 steps. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I... I, I, I think the 12 steps saved my life. My mm. first year of, um, of sobriety was spent in a medium maximum security prison. And it was at that place that uh, prior to that, when they slammed that big holding cell door on me on February 15th, 1995, um, it was at that point that uh, I, uh, in, the, in the rooms, we say I turned my life over to the creator I, you know, kind of, I made a promise and I just sort of told, asked the creator and, and let the creator know that I want to go with you. And, um, and that brought me, I didn't know what that meant, but it brought me to the 12 steps into recovery. And that's, I think that's what saved my life and certainly allowed me to build a foundation to build a life on Talk a little bit, Michael, about what it was like for you growing up. You are a member of the indigenous community. And tell me a little bit about where you grew up. What was growing up like for you as an indigenous person? Oh, growing up was difficult. Like a lot of uh, our people, no matter um, if you're native or non-native, non-indigenous or indigenous, a lot of people who come through into recovery and have suffered from active addiction um, have been victims of trauma and actually perpetuators eventually of trauma as mm. well. And so that, that was sort of my start. I always say that I was, I was born with a broken heart because mm. I really feel as though that were true. Um, I, mom was a heroin addict. Um, dad died and came back from Vietnam war and died in a fiery car crash on the Yankton Sioux reservation. And, a intersection called the six mile corner and um he was the driver in that and so that's life started off pretty rough how old were you when your father died after coming back from oh i was just a baby i was Mm -hmm. just a baby in fact i didn't find out up until maybe five years ago what he looked like and i'm looking at a picture of him right now with uh with vietnam war vietnam uh um, army um, fatigue on now and I was only only able to find that because of um, media and able to connect with relatives that I didn't know um, and what a and, profound act of service from your father to be a Native American and serve a country that certainly didn't serve the Native American community over a period of years. So what a tremendous act of courage and a tremendous act of patriotism. Well, thank you for acknowledging that. Most people don't know uh, 
but Native Americans historically um, have served in the armed forces at a higher rate than any other ethnic group. Hmm. And that's been a number of years for, for generations now, quite surprisingly. Actually. Really, it is. Yeah. And I come from a military family. My father served in World War II, was a decorated World War II veteran, or my grandfather, and then, then my father in Vietnam. But myself, I, I screwed it up from the get-go. But it was, <laughs> I, was, I was about 30 when I actually tried to enlist. I was at a point in my recovery where I didn't know where, which direction to go. So I found myself in an Army recruiting office. But they turned me away because because of my history, my legal history. So I, I did give it a shot. <laughs> well, then you you were only responsible for the effort, right? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. The outcome. yeah. <laughs> so uh, you start off uh, in a rough spot. Mom is addicted to heroin. Dad passes on very, very early on, uh, sets it up for a, a pretty rough start. How does childhood go for you? Oh, childhood was scary, was filled with very scary moments because everybody in my family, and that still holds true today. I say that with a broken heart, that that still it holds true today. Um, addiction, alcoholism all around. And so I remember at being around four years old and we had entered into the foster care system at that time. And one of the most traumatic things that had happened was I, I became separated from my brother and sister. And I remember looking out, I was with a family that I didn't know. I, by then I had start to, um, all of this that was happening, I didn't know what was going on. Nobody really explained to me what was going on. And I don't think I would have understood what was happening mm -hmm. in the first place. But I remember about four years old, five years old, looking out the screen door, because I remember I was really small and I was looking out into the what seemed like forever into a blue sky and cornfields and stuff like that. And I remember at that time, it felt like life had become too painful. And I remember at that time, sort of choosing, almost choosing to shut myself off from emotions to mm. numb myself from, from emotions because it was too much. Now, what we now know is that you cannot selectively numb. <laughs> so yeah. quite naturally, I wanted to numb the pain when, and I didn't have anything else. I, I didn't know how to speak. I didn't know how to express the pain. And so I numbed myself off from emotions and from the pain. But when I did that, I was also numbing myself off from the ability to express love and accept love, ex mm. accept kindness into my life. So they say you cannot selectively numb. When you're numb in this part of yourself, you're also numbing, you know, those other aspects too. And that's why it really became hard for me to love myself. Um, boy, can... I relate. And I think so many of us, Michael, can relate to that. When I was 11 years old, my mom died of cancer mm. and that pain was so overwhelming. I, I made a very similar choice as you and, and made a decision to not allow myself to get that close to people again mm. and 
from then on out, I was going to shut that off because it was too overwhelming. I couldn't endure that again, that pain, that loss, that trauma again. And as you so wisely and profoundly stated, we shut it all off at that point. Mm-hmm. And that really then provided a f- very fertile ground for addiction and alcoholism to take place. How does life go for you as you enter into your teenage and young adult years? Well, at that point, I mean, I, you know, when I introduce myself in meetings and I, well, I hear people saying, oh, if I could just be young again and I, I could do it all over again. I think, oh, absolutely not. I don't <laughs> ever want to go through that period again in my life because, I mean, that feeling that feeling of fear always was there. It, it never left me. Even when I, you know, when I was an athlete and when I, I couldn't strike out enough batters, I couldn't hit, hit the home run or, or, or the, without always having that, those, that dialogue up in my coconut, that always um, brought fear with it. So mm. the fear to interact, the fear, just, just fear, man. And so, um, you know, at that point, mom had gotten us back and she had married a very violent man. And so we had, we, the introduction to violence began and introduction to, to active alcoholism began at a very young age as well. And that was like a living nightmare. And again, the, the only tools that I had was to um, keep it in. Um, and so that's what I did. And, and of course, um, um, that just led to more sort of self-destructive thoughts and self-destructive behaviors, unhealthy behaviors. As a, as a, as a child, I those manifested themselves such as um, like I, I have a criminal record from far, far back as I can remember. One of those is arson and, and things such as breaking into houses. That was my idea of fun. But now that I look back on it, obviously that wasn't normal. Mm. And I was, I mean, the, the little small town of Yankton, South Dakota, I terrorized that town by burning multiple structures on a regular basis and it to me it felt like since life was so out of control it gave me a sense of control i believe Mm, absolutely you come back to your mom were you in foster care for a a spell then and then mom gets you back and uh, immediately you are faced with an abusive individual in your own home so fear and loss is interwoven into your childhood really from the very beginning yeah absolutely um both parents were severely um abusive and um you know they did it here i go they did a study on rats okay Mm, and so they when they did the study on rats they would uh shock a rat and what they found and then they measured the stress levels of these rats and they found that it was the rat that was observing the other rats being shocked 
experience higher degrees of stress than actually getting shock. So not only was it um, very damaging to receive and be, be the victim of abuse, but also to watch other family members, other my brother and sister and hear that being done was equally, if not more so based on that study, um, added more stress and, and, and perpetuated that, that those layers of trauma. Oh, that's fascinating, Michael. And I didn't know that. Yeah. But it does make sense yeah. in a very real way because having to witness it mm-hmm. and not be able to stop it or intervene is an incredibly powerless feeling. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. An incredibly helpless feeling. Michael, when's the first time, how old were you, when you had a mood-altering substance? And do you remember that experience? Oh, yeah. I remember it like it was yesterday. I don't want to forget it. I'll never forget I had been gone all night because the party was on at home. And when that was going on, I needed to leave. Mm. And I was alone and I had spent the night out last week. We got into the habit of sleeping outdoors, under a bush, um, in the park, wherever we could sleep. And that night, for some reason, that I was alone. And I remember sleeping under this bush outside our trailer home and then covering myself up with leaves. And then in the the next morning after, um, I walked in the trailer home and of course you never know what you're going to find people yeah. passed out but there was always i walked right in and i looked at this um this um coffee table and it was typical of a night like that the stench of beer and smoke and stale smoke and vomit is in the air but the stench of resentment fear of alcoholism and the vibe that is there you know, that's what I was so afraid of. Even if something wasn't going on, my my senses were in tune to that, in tune to that danger. And I looked at that that coffee table and it had all the beer cans. Some were tipped over. A lot of them had cigarette butts in them. And that it was at that point that I just remember uh, making a promise to myself that I will never do that to somebody else again. But I had snuck a little snort of that stuff. I had to find out what it is that mm. what that they taste. And I just remember, I think it was Pat's Blue Ribbon. And I remember sneaking a little snort of it and just thinking, why would anybody drink something like that? <laughs> and, it, and it wasn't later after that promise that I had made that I found out why they drank that stuff. <laughs> mm. Indeed. When you talk about the destructiveness, I can very much relate to that. I had a lot of anger inside of me and I didn't have a lot of control over much of what, what happened previous to me and a lot of what was going on in my life at the time when I was a teenager after my mom died and my dad gets remarried and just all these things that I'm not able to be able to cope with and deal with. And, um, you know, uh, tipping down a light pole or setting a biffy on fire was an incredibly powerful feeling, you know? And there was a rush to it. Yeah. And so it was a similar rush that, you know, as drugs and alcohol gave me at the time as well, right? So it was like this, you know, this feeling of, 
you know, being able to execute some power and control in my life, coupled with this this really um, intoxicating rush of doing something like that. So, you know, reminds me that, uh, you know, it feels like a ninth step is never really done. This is something that I got to write back down. The city of Apple Valley probably needs some amends uh, at this point. So, you know, uh, God puts us, uh, puts people in front of us. So thank you, Michael, for reminding me of another amend that I have to add to the list. Uh, When's the first time you engaged in substances and enjoyed it? And do you remember that experience? Oh, I remember exactly because up until this point, I was painfully shy person. I had this mind that couldn't shut off the dialogue that prevented me from doing things that said things to me that, you know, you're, you're not good enough. Don't do that. You'll look stupid, prevented me from living a life. And so I, so I'll never forget. It was at a, an all Indian boarding school in Flandreau, South Dakota. In Flandreau, South Dakota, it was my freshman year, and I was a young freshman, so I was probably fourteen or something like that. I can't remember. Uh, maybe even thirteen. But I'll never forget. I was the last of the holdout because of that promise that I had made, but because I have what I had observed, and finally. Um, uh, finally, I gave in, and I'll never forget the effect that it had on me. And because, you know, a lot of people, when they describe their story, they say that they wanted to get numb. And I told you about my experience. I was already numb. Mm. And they say they described their first experience as being shot out of the cannon into the stars and euphoric. And I get that. But for me, I remember when I drank, I then went outside into the, the front of the dorm. There was a large porch and there was a line of girls there. And I had been so scared of girls. I couldn't talk to them. I couldn't even talk to guys. You know, it was I couldn't talk to teachers. I, it, and so for the first time in my life, I in a lot of ways, I felt normal. Because all that dialogue was shut off, that was preventing me from experiencing life, shutting off that fear switch. I was smooth. I remember the effect. I was, I was like, I was for the first time in my life. I was, I was saying funny things and and almost like a silent movie. I remember the the gals, you know, across the porch laughing at the things that I had said. So I, for the first time in my life, I felt in a lot of ways, normal, because that fear was gone. But obviously, it was intoxicating as well, and made me feel good, too. But I'll tell you what, at that point, because of its effect on me, I think I was hooked. I didn't know it at the time. But I think that's what really that experience of fear leaving me, being feeling like I'm, I'm popular, I'm cool for the first time, I'm funny, that feeling of, of, of intoxication no doubt and i had a extraordinarily similar experience the first time i not drank but got drunk and it felt very much that it unlocked things inside of me that i was unable to unlock prior to that i could 
talk to the girls. And I was terrified of talking to girls prior to that moment. I could talk to them. I could talk to them confidently. I could flirt with them. I could stick up to the boys. And if people would laugh, I let it roll off my back. And I felt for the very first time that I had arrived that this is the real me. Mm. This is the me that I've been looking for. This is the me that I've always wanted to be. And alcohol gave that to me. And I don't know if I connected it, but it did feel like the answer to me. And I just wanted to do it again. All I wanted to do is do that again. Yeah, I mean, at that point, I didn't have a taste for alcohol. It was disgusting to me. It was only later on down the line did I actually start to actually enjoy the taste. Right. Um, but it was the effect yeah. that, like you described, similar. I, I like the way you said that. Very similar effect. I also recognized very early on after three or four drinks, it all tastes the same anyway. So it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I didn't like the taste at first, but, you know, it took about eight minutes to get four drinks in me. So it didn't really matter that much. And then it all tasted the same, you know, at that point. So, but you're right. Later on, I did learn to uh, very much enjoy the taste, which, you know, made it worse. But tell me how that progresses for you um, as you move into young and uh, young adulthood and adulthood. Well, at that point, I, I didn't really have, you know, my identity and my self-image was just very fragile. If something came along, and I think maybe that's normal for teens at some point, but for me, it was really sort of a, a good word that they say is toxic. Mm. I am in, in the room, we say I compared my my insides to everybody's outside. So I was sort of hostage to whatever it is that I saw was cool, um, very so low self-esteem. And I quit school at the age of 15. I, after I was in that boarding school, I moved back to Sioux City here and I just didn't feel like I fit in. I developed severe acne, which on my self-esteem was already low in the first place but boy I tell you what it just took a nosedive but that's all the more reason because if drinking um, and drugging gives me a sense of belonging then that's all the more that I really need to do that and so I didn't fit in at school and, and I had friends that were older that could get us what we needed and, and I've been a criminal all my life so that trend just continued. The pattern just continued. And um, at that point, I'm 15 years old. I'm trying to be a man because at that point, being a man meant going to jail, meant I can drink you under the table. I can fight. I can pound my chest. Hyper, very destructive behaviors, hyper-masculinity um, at its core. And so... I mean, just the drinking increase, the drugging increase, and so did those behaviors. And mm. and I and and more and more so became more of a distance of who I was. Um, 
And I wanted to be at a distance, but I think that 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 separation as well um, was sort of uh, was was ab- obviously very self-destructive because in that element, um, you, you're making a beeline towards one for me suicide. I I had been obsessing about suicide for years. Mm. I thought sooner or later, I'm, you know, if I don't go down in a hail of gunfire, I'm going to wrap my lips around a revolver or I the fact is, is I don't want to be around anymore. I, I'm not going to live until 23 years old. I'm not going to be around for much longer because I don't want to be around for much yeah. longer. Yeah. Yeah. Because life is painful and hard and lonely. Yep. Right. Yep. Yep. So what happens next? You're in this you're increasingly isolated and desperate place and criminal activity is still very much a part of your life. Drugs and alcohol are still a very much a part of your life. What happens next? Mm. Snowball. Snowball effect. Um and anything to escape it. And the only thing that I know that as a tool that I have on my tool belt is exactly what I've, what I've described. So it's almost like same thing, just fast forward it a little while longer, but the misery doesn't stay the same. It, it is on the increase. The depression is on the increase. More scars are showing up on my body. I don't know where they come from. More examples enter my life of of complete um, out of control, but then life has always been out of control. So that's normalized. Anything outside of that, um, any goodness or blessings or any sort of positive behavior, I begin to sort of um, compromise and sort of like negotiate the fact that, well, you know, there, and I start to lie to myself and I start to see people who don't drink or do don't do those things as I start using terms such as you can't trust them. They're lying. People like that don't exist. Um, and so I become increasingly separated and at the same time. And it's, it's just so unpowerful and unusual. That is what I want in my life. I want that in my life, but I'm just not at a point. My, my life is invested in everything that I described and then drugs, alcohol, tenfold. So my life became, becomes a, uh, just a very predictable pattern of, of coping. And they refer to it as partying um, um, and going from job to job and never could develop relationships. You know, never could get a girl because of how low my self-esteem was. Um, and so that just fast forwarded a lot of that. But but on dial in the increase on depression, on, on this willingness to not want to be here, a dark cloud over my head, this, this, this attitude and this behavior and this belief that I'm damned. At any point... <laughs> Throughout this period, does it come to your awareness or consciousness that 
drugs and alcohol might be a part of the problem? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't really remember that. Um, or that you try um, to manage it at all or. Any oh, of- yeah. Oh, yeah. Switching, mm-hmm. you know, switching, trying to. I used to always tell myself if I ever do the needle, then I'm really bad. But I'll tell you what, I'll never forget. I was probably um, 17 years old. In fact, I know that I was 17 and it was hot out. It was summertime. It was like already 9 a.m. And it's already feels like it's 100 degrees. And by then we were drinking quart bottles. I don't know. I think maybe it was cool at the time, but we were drinking quarts and we were behind the 7-Eleven here on 14th and Pierce Street. And there were these big apartment buildings where my best friend's older brother, we did a lot of drinking there. They lived there. And so we were downstairs at the come and go or at the gas station, the 7-Eleven. We were trying to scrounge up enough change to get a court. There was around four of us. And one of them was this really pretty girl. And I'm sitting there thinking a girl like that is could never be attracted to me. And then we're trying to scrounge up enough change to get a court. It was hot out. And I just remember at that point, it, 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 it hit me that... I got a problem mm-hmm. that this is, there's something to this. I look like those other people that I used to judge that were that bad, that were doing the same thing outside the gas station just so they could get, uh, get something to drink. And that's, I had become exactly what I told myself that I wouldn't be. We keep drawing these lines in the sand and then, smoothing them over and drawing new lines. And I heard somebody once say in the rooms, I knew I had a problem when I couldn't lower my standards quick enough to justify my behavior. Mm. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I feel that. I, I, I don't just understand that intellectually. That goes right to my heart. And I feel that. And, I th- and I'm thankful that I know that and, and feel that. So you start going through this process of trying to manage it, switching, uh, switching stuff around. Do you, what do you try, Michael, through this period to try to manage it and try to quote unquote limit you know the sort of the damage that uh that this is causing what do i try i try what everybody else seems what seems to be working for them um uh, at a young age um so one of our circle one of our crew they had broken into a uh burglarized a a um um Chinese restaurant. And so I was introduced to a lot of hard liquor. And so I, I, I didn't like hard liquor because of that experience. And, um, and so I did the typical thing, switching, like they say, in some of the literature, switching yeah. from, from different types of alcohol. Yeah. That was one of the things that I tried. Another thing that I tried was, you know what, that's, that's a difficult for one for me to remember because I, you know, I think the trying part was sort of internal. 
Yeah. The effort was to deny what was really happening yeah. to me. And then, and then the priority is to escape that reality. And that is in the shape of what has always worked, the magic potion of, of, of what um, alcohol and drugs and behaviors did for me. I could escape reality that I was suicidal, that I was miserable, that I had potential at one time. And I don't know what I want to do. And this is, this is my life. And this is, this is the way that it will always be. Are there consequences that are starting to manifest at this point, as you talk about the progression of the depression and the suicidal thoughts and the increased use of drugs and alcohol are consequences starting to rack up at this point. Oh man, they've been racking up from day one, but I'll (laughs) tell you what, and, and that's the thing is that I'm that, that life becomes normalized. So, so, you know, it is, is almost like I failed to failed to identify my progression intellectually. But from the soul and the spirit, boy, I felt it. And Mm. so on the outside, yes, oh, I was going to jail more often for different types of charges. But just as importantly, I was getting away with way more Mm. than whatever I was getting busted for. And Mm. so there was still a lot of burglaries. There was a lot of violence. Um, I didn't know how to respect women or to maintain or develop relationships. So there was a lot of things that shouldn't be there that were there. And there was a lot of things that should be there that weren't there. And so it was, I mean, you talk about consequences. I mean, just walking around, you could have placed me in the happiest place on earth, on the beach. And those type of places I absolutely loved. And that's where I wanted to escape to. I was constantly daydreaming about where I could escape to. And part of that was the afterlife of Mm. what's next, because the consequences going from job to job, the inability to have a girlfriend, um, sleeping on, breaking into a friend's house just so I could sleep in in his basement after getting kicked out. I mean, just, just the whole, my whole life was about the consequences of that lifestyle. Were any of the consequences severe enough to prompt you to want to try to not drink or use for any period of time to say, hey, I got to stop this for at least a little while? No, no. You know, that's that's interesting, Michael. And I wonder if that's a phenomenon of the environment Mm -hmm. that you were brought up in. And were living in since the beginning where where you didn't have people in your life that probably were saying that you didn't have probably a lot of sober or um, healthy examples of people that were, you know, pointing fingers at you and saying, you need to cut that out. Right. Absolutely not. That was and even if it got to a point where somebody did my values, my life was so invested into that lifestyle that I 
I don't think that I would have heard them anyway. Right. And at that point, um, if anybody was kind to me and tried to be real authentic in a, in a soft way, as opposed to slamming the door on my face or with the fist or et cetera, um, I would, I, at that point, I didn't, I, I just didn't have, have the ability to trust or yeah. even recognize um, when somebody was being um, authentic. And what love might have looked like coming absolutely. from. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how does this all come to a head? Oh, I'll tell you what. I, you know, I've been through treatment, been court ordered through treatment. Um, I grew up a burglar. I just, that was the, that was the lifestyle. I remember five, six, eight years old, breaking into a laundromat, breaking into a, 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 whatever could be broken into, we broke into it. Um, and so that, you know, that continued on, but it was the final, the finality of the deal comes is I'm 24 years old. I'm, I'm um, going to court on February 15th of 1995. I have a family. I'm now a father now for the first time in my life. I feel love, love in the ability to receive love and give love. And she's three years old and, and, um, and, but that's not enough for me to quit. That's, it's just not enough. Um, and so February 14th is my belly button birthday, Valentine's Day. February 15th, I know I'm gone. I'm going to prison without a doubt because I've been in that courtroom way too many times. I've, I've been on probation. They've given me a chance. That got revoked. And so I'm looking at that original burglary charge from 1991, second degree burglary. But of course, I've gotten away with way more than I've ever been convicted of. And so it was at that time that um, I, um, well, I hit rock bottom and I'll never, I don't ever want to forget because I love, I have this family. We rented this little house and I couldn't keep a job. I was such such and such toxic shame and just, oh my gosh. And, you know, I know that I'm going to prison the next day. In February, the day before February 14th is my birthday. Now you would have thought that I would have been at home preparing my family for me leaving. I know I'm going to prison. You would have thought that since it was my birthday, that we would have been having dinner and I would have been preparing the love of my life, my daughter, letting her know daddy's not going to be around for a while and preparing her for that. But no, my alcoholism is kicked in. It's my birthday. Selfishness is just, is, is demonstrated is there. And I'm in the one of the most stinking bars in all of Sioux city thinking that I'm some sort of celebrity because it's my birthday. And the last thing I remember is these shots sitting in front of me and that's it. And so the next day I go to court. And of course, at that time, I'm, I, you know, I can't spend time with my family, but I got to strategize this. We're going in front of the judge. So this judge, we need to, we need to use my daughter as a prop at this mm. time, because she's got these big brown eyes that will melt anybody's heart. And the judge needs to see that we have this love. So Let's just make sure, no matter what, let's strategize this to get me out of trouble again. 
and I'm using, and, and we, let's just put my daughter, Brooke Ashley, right here alongside of me so that he, the judge will go light on me again. And guess what? I'll tell you what, during the proceedings, she's asleep. She's, she <laughs> fell out. She's laying across it. And I'm so, de- I'm so delusional. I'm thinking I could telepathically get her to wake up. But, you know, all these court proceedings are going on. Lawyers are talking. My freedom is on the line. And I'm telepathically trying to get my daughter to wake up. And not <laughs> once did it occur to me that she was sleeping probably because she had been up all night mm-hmm. wondering when daddy was going to come home so they could cut the cake and blow out the candle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I never want to forget. And what woke her up was the shackles. And, you know, in those big courtrooms and those mm. courthouses, you could hear a pin drop. Mm. And so that's what woke her up. I didn't get to say goodbye to her. I never want to forget. This is what my addiction and alcoholism does for me. I never want to forget this moment because that's what woke her up. And she was the love of my life and I was her hero. And so she woke up in that courtroom to her hero being led away, shackled the back of me. She had seen the back of me going to the bars, going to God knows what, and being led away. And I never want to forget her crying, just echoing through that entire very large building in downtown Sioux City. And that's the last thing I heard. And they slammed that door on me. And at that point, I remember I took a deep breath and I let it out. And now that I look back on it and I looked up, and now that I look back on it, it felt like I was um, ex- inhaling God's will, creator's will, whatever you want to call it. And I was exhaling my will. And even though that I was going to prison, um, I felt free in that, in that, in that um, holding cell. And, but I never, and so with today, I, that's what I know what it takes. When things are going rough, I still remember how it felt at that point when I did that. There was a physical sensation. There was a spiritual feeling that I never felt that I'm done. I want to go with you now. And especially after hearing my daughter, the most important person in my life, in that scenario, that is, I never want to forget that because that was the beginning of this beautiful life of recovery. And at the same time, I know where my addiction goes if I were to go back. True surrender. Absolutely. And that surrender experience that came over you. Oh, yeah. Allowed you to find the 12 steps inside of those prison walls. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It saved my life. And did you work all 12 steps inside? Yep. I did the best that I could. But when I got out, then I went on this mission of of making amends. Um, I did the best that I could on the inside. And Mm. I'll never forget, um, we were going to the prison chapel. and And I had the typical attitude of, of glorifying my, my record because, you know, Oh, I've done this. I've done that. I'm a big time prisoner. Now I've graduated and now I'm big time. There was still some of that there, 
and I and what's this pasture? They're gonna have me do a fifth step. They're gonna have me, um, you know, this guy doesn't know who I am. And so I remember going in there and, and writing writing it all down, and then going in there, and he just simply, I remember I was I was in tears. And he, him putting his hand on my shoulder as I was leaned over, um, feeling very shameful and, and, and regretful and crying. And he just put his hand on my shoulder and he said, God forgives you. And now you have to forgive yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when he, when I left that prison chapel, I just remember floating down the hallway back to my unit. And to me, that was I had had a lot of spiritual experiences as a kid. Now that I look back on it, that scared me. They scared me. At that point, I, that was my first sober spiritual experience. Without it, all, I, was, I literally felt like I was floating down that hallway. What a profound experience that I think many of us who have worked the 12 steps in order with a sponsor can identify with your surrender experience, Michael, reminds me a lot of mine in that I had this profound surrender in the intake of my treatment. And I had been to treatment before and, you know, didn't take it seriously and wasn't ready, but this profound experience that came over me, this profound surrender and crying like a baby in that treatment counselor's office. And that what quickly followed that true and profound surrender was, as you said, Michael, a willingness to do whatever it takes to get better and never feel like that ever again, that profound shame and that profound demoralization that I had felt right before I surrendered to it all. Right. But it was a gift. They talk about that gift of desperation and that, then that surrender moment that's so crucial for us in order to really have the willingness we need to do whatever it takes in order to get better at it very much sounds like you made that decision to do whatever it took to get better and work those 12 steps to the best of your given ability had some pretty profound results. So what happens after the fifth step and continue through those steps for you? How does, how does your life begin to change? I start to experience things for the first time in my life again. Um, my attitude completely changes. I start to experience things such as gratitude, and I had never felt gratitude. I thought grateful was the word that only priests say or or they say over there. Um, I start to experience things such as self-respect in my life, and I start to see the value in honesty. Mm. And I start to see the value in that grieving process in letting go. And I also see, um, I start to, everything starts to seem new to me. I start to appreciate 
just basic, basic interaction. I start to prayer starts to become a part of my life because up until that point, I resented God. I hated mm. God. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, they say um, change happens from the inside out. And that's exactly what was happening. I couldn't wear the cool clothes no more. I couldn't dress up. And, and by the time I was done, man, I couldn't even do that anymore. And so it was it was complete sort of emptying out, they say, so that I could receive. And boy, I tell you what, just talking about it, um, I'm, I feel like I'm reliving that experience. And I like it because I feel like it's more intoxicating than anything that I've ever experimented with or got hooked on. You made the statement that I think is really instructive, Michael, that you hated God, that you resented God. And I too had a, an enormous resentment toward God all my life for, in my view, taking my mother away from me. And I wanted no part of a God that would allow that to happen. And then, so I made that conscious decision as well. I made those two conscious decisions. I don't need anybody in my life. I don't need to get close to people, number one. Number two, I don't need God either. And when I had that profound surrender and then a willingness to do whatever it took to get better, working through the 12 steps, you know, you come to two and three. And for me, I had to wipe that slate completely clean because I thought it was silly to invent a higher power that could save me from my alcoholism and addiction. Like if I can think it up, it's not big enough for me. Right. And so I just started praying to nothing, but I was praying earnestly. And I remember listening to Joe and Charlie as I was reading the big book and they just kept saying, run the experiment, see what happens. Don't worry about the process. Don't worry about trying to dissect or analyze the process. Just run the experiment and do it to the best of your ability and see what happens. If you don't like the results at the end, then, you know, we'll refund your misery completely. Right. So, and I did. So I started praying to this God that I didn't understand that I had no concept of, but I was doing it in a very earnest way. And it wasn't too long before I started seeing and feeling profound changes in the way that I felt and the way I related to the world. And I'm, made a, 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 I understood something at that moment that was extremely profound, that God doesn't change the world. This God that I don't understand, that I don't have a concept of, doesn't change the world, doesn't change you or other people. This God changes me. And that is the miracle. Because I couldn't change me by myself before I tried Everything I had done to try to change me didn't work for very long, maybe for a little bit, but not for very long. But this higher power was changing me in profound ways. Can you relate to that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at uh, um, something that I have posted. It says, I used to believe that prayer changes things, but now I know that prayer changes us. 
and we change things. Yes. I think that's Mother Teresa. Yes. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah, I had very similar experiences. I didn't know, I didn't trust, but in, in those steps, I got to that point where I knew in my heart that I needed, that I needed to have a relationship. And, and I was the same way. I had no idea. I was afraid of God. You know, when I was in a foster home, when we were young, we made a circle and we held hands and they said, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord, my soul to keep if I should die. And I remember thinking, I don't want to die. Right. That's terrifying. That's a terrifying prayer. Just yeah, in general. And, and so when things were bad and I'd be too afraid to breathe too loud and then I'd say a prayer and, and then I felt like the, the, the prayers weren't being answered. And so um, that that's what led to the resentments against God or anybody who even mentioned God. Mm -hmm. And so I remember being in the unit, in the treatment unit of the prison and my counselor, individual counselor, his name was Mike too. And I remember there was this strong, like a yearning, like a push, like a desire to know how do I pray? Because I didn't know how to pray. And I remember he came in around nine. And when he came in, he came in through the unit door and there was his office. I was waiting right there for him. And he, of course, he did. Hey, Mike, how you doing? I followed into his office. And by then I started, I had learned how to ask for help and to ask questions. And I remember saying, asking him desperately, I said, how do I pray? And he just kept it real simple and it threw me back. He said, Mike, just talk to God, just talk. And I thought I needed to sound like a priest or say <laughs> this, that, or the other. But, and that's what started it. That's what started. Indeed. And I remember my prayers were very simple in the beginning, like help and like, <laughs> thank you. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but <laughs> what I said mattered a whole lot less than how I said it and how earnest I was in asking, like you said, learning how to ask for help from other people and from my higher power. And that authentic, genuine, earnest desire for help and that authentic and earnest gratitude really made all the difference. So how long are you in prison and what happens when you get out i'm i'm there for just a year just a year and when you say just out, a year I, I mean that's kind of a long time you know yeah for... <laughs> well, you know i was in there for a burglary charge and it was just a year um i come my older brother's done 13 years in prison so we kind of that kind of runs in our <laughs> side of the family yeah. um this you know, I like to describe this situation. When I get out, I am, you know, for the first time in my life, I am grateful. And that shows itself, you know, this great gratitude. This is a program of action. And when, when I'm being guided and told by gratitude, uh, I'll never forget. I went to my old boss who I had shown up at this, at, at this job drunk all the time i argued with him and i mean 
I remember going to make amends to him. Um, and I remember just, just putting it all out there. You know, I'm doing, I don't even remember what I said really, other than <laughs> I'm sorry for all the things that I've done and said to you. And I remember reaching my hand out and I remember him looking down at my hand and he kind of looked sideways at me and he shook my hand and, and, um, I just remember after that, we, there was, those things changed me. And I and I I got a story to tell about when I got out of prison, you know, I I my old lady left me, thank God, I would have left me a long time ago too. <laughs> and had and had moved in with another guy. So my daughter was you know writing me letters and, and saying, Can I can I love him and stuff like that? And of course I said yes, you know, of course, you know. But I'll never forget. That when I got out, um, all I had was to my name in my entire life was in a cardboard box about yay. And then I had all the, all the prison blues. And in prison, you press them, you iron them because you ain't got much else to do. I started taking pride in my appearance. I started to feel good about who I was on the inside for the first time in my life. Mm-hmm. I'm sober. You, they've taken me through the 12 steps. I've been a praying person. I've gratitude. Um, and so I'm feeling good. I get on that bus and we, and we, there's a layoff in Omaha and I'll never forget. It's this tiny little bus station for such a big city. It's just this tiny bus station. And this is how my alcoholism works. And this is how recovery works. This is my first day being free. It was a beautiful day. I'm feeling great. I'm carrying my cardboard box with the twine holding it together and I'm holding it by the twine. I go into this bathroom. I do my business. I turn around. I'm looking in the mirror. I'm washing my hands and my and my self-image is still very fragile. Alcoholism kicks in and I'm looking in the mirror and I look at myself and all of a sudden that old dialogue, that old self-destructive dialogue kicks in and I start saying, look at you. You're, this is all you have in this cardboard box. That's all you have in the world. You're wearing prison blues and everybody out there in that lobby, they know it. And so what did I do? I that Immediately I switched over from gratitude to fear to some self-pity to judgment judging myself and I didn't want to leave and so what I did was I stayed in that bathroom there was like a two-hour layover and so I just this tiny little bathroom I just stood in the corner right where I was at and in comes this homeless man because he's got his cart and he's he looks homeless nothing against him but he just looks homeless Mm. I know he's homeless so he there's two sinks. He gets into the sink next to me and he's scrubbing himself up. And I'm standing really right here and I don't want to leave, but I'm embarrassed. And he finally stops and looks over at me and he goes, what are you doing? <laughs> and so by then I've started to become open and I tell him, I say, I'm, I just got out of prison and I'm afraid to go out there. And he, he very simply, but very profound, very genuine, like you said, he grabs me like this. He doesn't pull on hug me, but he hugs me, puts his arm around me 
And he says, I've been there. It's going to be okay. And then that's what uh, 12-step participation in the people in, does for me, is that one minute I could go this way, and then the next minute the people you know, in the programs, and I'm able to do that as well. And so I never want to forget him, is that he gave me the courage to go back out of that little bathroom and go I, back. I'm a firm believer, time. Michael that my higher power speaks through other people if I'm willing to listen. And it very much sounded like your higher power was talking to you through that, through that man. Yeah. Yeah. I believe so too. That's amazing. So you get back to Sioux city. Where do you go after prison and how does life go for you once you get back home? Um, I go right back I, because I didn't have anywhere to parole to. I burned all my bridges. People say you burn bridges, but me, I've never learned how to build bridges. <laughs> so I so I didn't have anywhere else to go. So I have I only have a choice to parole to this place that nobody wants to parole to. Most of them are court ordered, but I requested to go there. And by then, I've you, I've just, I feel good about myself. I'm brushing my teeth on a regular basis. I'm making my bed. I am, um, I, I, I've gained weight and I feel pretty good about myself for the first time in my life. And so I, I get a job and everybody else there, a majority of the people there are rebellious against the program there. You know, it's real simple. You follow the rules, you get a job. And, and by then, I've learned how to do those types of things and then to take pride because I've never been able to take pride in doing the right thing. Mm. So I knew by now who I needed to separate myself from, who not to hang out around with for the first time in my life, the skill set of being very observational as a kid and being fearful, those things actually played a positive part in my life because now I'm very observational. I'm very um, determined and I know who to stay away from that is going to compromise not just my, my, um, my sobriety, but also this way of life and this, this newfound belief system that I had in myself. I wasn't so much as judging them. I just knew those are the people that I don't hang out with. And so I started to really be open to, to new teachings and new lessons. And when I did that, it made me feel free and it made me feel cheerful um, and people. And I started to understand and see that people were kind, mm. people were generous. And there was just example after example. And I, I, I couldn't see that before. And so that started that that awareness entered into my life and that that inspired me to in turn be kind, be generous um, as well. And I had never had that before in my life. I'd always been scared of it. And you really begin to become a real active participant and member of the 12 step community, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to I'm going to a lot of meetings. I'm walking. I don't care how cold it is. I'm walking to the meetings because I've never had a driver's license. I've never had a car. So I'm 24 years old and I'm walking to meetings. Actually, I probably just turned 25. So I'm walking to meetings. 
I'm grateful to be there. I'm looking forward to it. I'm still a little bit shy. It took me about three years of going to meetings before I started to really open up mm. in meetings. But people were welcoming me. Um, I really, I was started to go to dances and eventually people started, I, I started to go out for coffee. Um, I, yeah, I, I jumped into it. I got a sponsor. Um, I didn't start sponsoring people until a little bit later on down in life, but, or in my recovery, but certainly I put myself the best that I knew how into recovery. Right in the middle of it. It sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I loved it. And I've never loved anything before like that in that capacity. And as you integrate yourself into recovery and into the 12 step community, you're going to the meeting before the meeting, you're going to the meeting after the meeting, you have a sponsor and eventually you start sponsoring other folks was your sponsor a member of the indigenous community no 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 because there weren't very many people from the indigenous community in the program especially back then mm. um and so no he was he was just somebody that had a sense of humor and didn't <laughs> you know i would you know a lot of people say that when they came in and i still run and i respect them um they say they need somebody that's really sort of um, that's going to tell you what to do. I had a, I think I was one of the ones that needed, I had been told what to do and I had been scolded and, and demeaned and all my life. I think I needed somebody that was going to give me a little bit of space and just had a aura of kindness and um, participation and, and active. Yeah. And that's what that's what attracted me to my first sponsor. They say to find that, somebody that has something that you want, right? And yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Some people need that drill sergeant, yeah, sponsor, and that works yeah. for them. Certainly, that was not going to work for me. And so I'm with you <laughs> on that, Michael. That I also had a sponsor that had what I wanted, and was willing to show me and tell me what he did in order to get better. And I was willing to do those things too. Right. Um, but he shared it as this is what worked for me, you know? So you begin sponsoring other folks in the 12 step program. And really that ends up being a really important part of your recovery. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Because for the first time in my life, I feel as though that I'm being I'm, a, I'm being asked to do something that there is a benefit that I don't quite understand. I'm willing to do this as long as I know the outcome, as long as I get something in return. And so during sponsorship, I didn't exactly know what it was that I was going to receive. And so to me, when I first started sponsoring I was really fearful of that, but that was, that brought me closer to my sponsor because then I could go to my sponsor and he could relate. Mm. And so that even further deepened my relationship with my sponsor, because then I was asking him questions and coming to him more deepening um, 
um, our relationship and then being able to take that back to somebody that is the, that I'm sponsoring. And I believe in the 12 steps. I believe that that myself, that is what a sponsor does is take somebody through the 12 steps. And that is the, the main foundation of it, but it is also like the sponsor that sponsor that I have now, I pick him up and we go to meetings during the week. He's now in school. And so he just got his one year chip um, last month. And so, um, but the main thing for us is to take somebody through the 12 step. And is there's not a lot as you just related when you were looking for a sponsor, there wasn't a lot of indigenous folks that had long-term sobriety that were able and willing to be sponsors. Right. And so not that that's a requirement, but boy, it certainly helps. I think if there are folks that have long-term sobriety that are willing to be sponsors, able to be sponsors that have what we want that also look like us. Yeah, because yeah, it's a, there's a there's a there's a, a an easier path to be able to relate. Like if they can get better, I can too, right? And it's easier to say, well, if I'm a member of the indigenous community, I don't see any indigenous people in recovery. Um, well, maybe I can't get better. Maybe you know, right? Um, and so, what a tremendous gift, Michael, for you to be able to be in a position as a member of the indigenous community and to be able to be of service in the way of being a sponsor. Yeah, absolutely. Not, and not just being a sponsor, but just being um, a representation of what the 12 steps and what a spiritual way of living can do. Because when, because now I probably don't look like somebody that's been to prison, that's done all these horrible things, but on the other side, um, you, you may not be surprised that because of recovery and because of the teachings um, in a spiritual way of life, that I'm actually able to do a, a lot of the things that and set goals and to attain those. So um, I think that I'm, a lot of people, when they see me, they, you know, that they might think, well, he doesn't understand. But certainly representation in the meetings does matter. And it is important to me to, to, to be who I am. And that is, you know, that is an indigenous person in recovery. And I, I get asked to sponsor a lot, even by women that are um, Native American that are indigenous. But of course, I, I cannot do that. I may be able to serve at some sort of support, but I also know that, um, you know, out of respect for the traditions and what I've been taught is to try and help them to find somebody that can serve as a sponsor to them. So absolutely, um, there are, we need more sponsors that are indigenous in our rooms um, that can take somebody through the 12 steps because as many times as I'm asked to sponsor, um, I know there simply aren't enough sponsors out there that are indigenous or, and, and just as importantly, had been through the 12 steps. And so I, I've done some things. I mean, I've started a, a, a what we call indigenous terms, a talking circle and that, and, but everybody's welcome to that meeting, no matter where you come from. 
So we've we've been doing a talking circle for about 10 years now to address that issue of, 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 of representation. And I've also tried to get non-Indigenous, non-Native um, white people or whoever to become more involved in and to know basic um, um, spiritual practices that are important to our indigenous people to give them a greater awareness of who we are so that so that can possibly build bridges and and if and if if i'm an indigenous person that just got out of got out of prison and there seems to be a lacking of long-term um recovery people like me well then if there's a non-native but he is he has been introduced to some of the basic concepts of what it is to be indigenous in and and perspectives and in sort of education um I'd, I'd probably feel you know pretty inclined to to feel as though um somebody is somebody understands this perspective even if they aren't indigenous they have demonstrated willingness to learn more. And so if, if you know, if I were to educate you on that, you would then, that would be inside of you and that would be expressed and they would be able to pick up on that. And they would say, well, you know, that that would be something that would strike my curiosity and, and I would pay attention and uh, be more inclined to um, 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 pattern um, and be and allow myself to be modeled by you simply because you felt like it was important to you to gain another culture perspective. And I would have a lot of respect for that. And that's nothing against anybody else. We, we all have our lives, but it is something that I've been keeping track of in our meetings and in our recovery community, and which I think um, is something that we need to really take a look at. And I want to talk more about that. One of the things that I think is really helpful to understand is that the 12 steps and the spirituality that is at the foundation of the 12 steps is quite compatible with Native American spirituality. Yeah? Absolutely. We're praying people. We've always been praying people. And... Um, We've received a lot of blessings from the elder community to say these 12 steps are right exactly aligned with our traditional way of life. And so since there is a lot of fear that indigenous people and in, in paranoia and caution that can stand in the way of uh, AA meeting or, or 12 step AA meeting recovery community, well, these people don't understand. I don't see anybody like me. And so there is a, there, there, there's, how shall I say it? There's a prejudice there that is obviously probably understandable. And so if we can offer, and if they, and if we can receive, and we have, we've received the blessing that, that recovery is a spiritual program. You can Sundance, you can powwow, you can take part in ceremonies and go into the Initi, the sweat lodge, and you can go to meetings. 
and you can integrate all that because that's what I do. And I know a lot of the relatives that come in do that as well, rather than sort of the uh, focus on the focus on the dif the the, the um, differences um, because of those because of those prejudices that we all have. Um, and so that's what I really like about the recovery program. They don't, they're not telling me what I need to do, but I'll tell you what, I absolutely, I, I encourage all my sponsees, go to a lot of meetings, like you said, get there early, stay late, but if, wherever you want to find religion or spirituality, that is, there is room for that. In yeah. fact, it's natural. One of the things we've talked some about is the fact that there isn't a lot of indigenous representation in the 12 step community. And that means that there must be some barriers that folks from the indigenous community are experiencing getting into long-term recovery. Michael, talk about some of those barriers and how do we help overcome them? Hmm. That's a good, that's a real good question. Um, and it's kind of a complex answer to that. As of last June, I've been taking census and um, every recovery meeting that I go to, I take the census of, of how many people are in the meeting and I take census of what minority populations are in the meeting as well. And what I have found, which really surprised me when I started to really pay attention, is that Native American indigenous people um, are overwhelmingly, first of all, uh, mainly uh, the majority of people that go to recovery meetings are going to be white. Mm. And for me, the census that I've taken is the second by a far is Native American indigenous people. Mm. And how do we get there is typically we're court ordered um, through DHS system, through um, um, probation, and we're court ordered to these treatment programs. And these treatment programs, because they're limited by funding, can only take us to about the fifth step. And so when these when 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 anybody is then released back into the community, they then are court ordered to go to to meetings, recovery meetings. And if there's a lack of of now, what I have also found is there is a lack of um, representation of indigenous people that have long term sobriety and that have been through the twelve steps. Two, two different things, because if I haven't been through the 12 steps, I cannot teach you to go through the 12 steps. And in these treatment programs, that is the basis and foundation of the recovery process. So they are, they, they are treating the, you with the 12 steps, and then they leave you off and release you into the community. And when you cannot find somebody who looks like you um, and then doesn't doesn't have that just simply isn't there as a resource to serve as a sponsor with long-term sobriety and, and knowledge for the 12 steps. That is something that I has has that I have identified as something that 
that it, it should be of interest to our recovery community, certainly as interested me in what do we do about that? Absolutely. And, yeah. And so I've started, a, again, I've started a meeting and I became um, very familiar with, um, the a, with the big book or NA 12 steps, but also with a, um, a curriculum that is the same 12 steps, but just adds a little bit of a Native American flavor to that. But we're, we are trying to do something about it. But right now, we're just, we feel like we're still at the beginning of that. Michael, you highlighted some really, really important things that I want to revisit. Number one, as you so astutely pointed out, treatment centers, especially if you are on a government-funded treatment program, are only going to take you so far because the funding runs out, right? Like step five. And then... They dump you into 12-step meetings and off you go. Now, it should be also pointed out that that probably happens less to white folks. That their insurance might be better, right? Their insurance might last longer because they have more access to better insurance and even abilities to potentially pay out of pocket based on being in a, uh, a, a wealthier social status. Right. And so that's, I think an important thing to point out. That being said, the answer has to be in the meantime, because getting a government to change how they fund indigenous and poor folks and how they fund their treatment isn't a today answer. There has to be some sort of a a solution in the meantime. And that solution in the meantime really lies in large part in getting folks to finish these 12 steps and get all the way through with a sponsor that they can relate to. And that's much more likely if that sponsor looks like they do and has some similar experiences and background as they do, right? So great work you're doing, Michael on looking to put together meetings that have a an indigenous spin on them that would potentially be more attractive and feel more welcoming and comforting to folks from the indigenous community coming out of treatment, right? And then looking to... because. That's where it starts. You just we just have to start, right? Just like really in the beginning of, you know, Bill Wilson in the beginning, you know, it started small and you know, sort of, right? Kind of the same thing going on, right? Yeah. Let's, yeah. It's got to start somewhere, right? What else can we do? Well, not what else. The last, the what, the last thing I wanted to address is that you had said there's some things folks that aren't a part of the indigenous community 
can know about the indigenous community that could be potentially more welcoming for folks that come into a 12-step meeting they're a part of the indigenous community maybe you can just take a minute or two and highlight some of those things for us that might be helpful for us to know oh that is a good question i mean that's one thing that i that i feel like is a good idea is to um make yourself available or go go if, if there's a reservation nearby and there's around three um well, two very that are very close to where i live go to the reservation go to the reservation meeting mm. um read some read some literature um um go out of your way to make make somebody that's that looks different that is indigenous to feel welcome remember their name but I would, I would also encourage, and I know this is sort of like um, kind of could be far out thinking, but I would say like, like I've offered to do cultural presentations to um, the 12-step recovery community, and that didn't really hit off very well. I didn't get, I only got around three people that signed up. Um, but that does make a difference when 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 I am talking and I am speaking in terms of my family or our belief system. If you were to sort of know a little bit about that, um, and then you could relate that into your own life, that that as an indigenous person, I'm going to know that about you. You're going to, you're going to take an interest because. I mean, as indigenous people, we, we, we live in the mainstream. And so we know for the most part about what churches are and what they function as and what um, other aspects. We've heard a little bit about other aspects of, of spirituality and other different cultures as well. We, 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 are, we, we function in a mainstream culture. And so if you as a non-native were to were to become curious and just open up a dialogue or become willing to know more about who I am as an indigenous person. Um, what does creator like and how do I pray? What what nation am I from? What tribe am I from? Um, you're going to gain more knowledge towards uh, what does an eagle feather mean? How, you know, um, what is what are family structures like? You're going to be able to gain a lot more knowledge that's going to help you um, when when somebody that is indigenous comes into your group, and they're going to know that too, and that's going to make them feel more comfortable. And because oftentimes there is a lack of of old timers in twelve steps, well then that person likely might be drawn to the fact and maybe look upon you as, as a potential sponsor or a support system because you know what Sundance is. You know what Sweat Lodge is. You may not have been there or taken part, but you know that. And so you knowing that, you have a respect for that. And we are very fine-tuned and observational historically. And so we can pick up on stuff like that. That is in our DNA to be able to do that. And when we do step out of our comfort zone and expose ourselves to 
other cultures and different spiritual traditions, my experience is it enhances my recovery. Mm, yeah. It enhances my spirituality. And I begin to integrate some of those things into my own recovery. So I benefit to a great degree as well as others might benefit in terms of me having some more comfort and familiarity with the familiarity with the indigenous community and the spiritual traditions that are embodied within. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's really a win-win. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Because then I learn more about you and that, and that creates more of a connection and breaks down some of the barriers that are there. Absolutely. Uh, as well. And that adds to my experiences as too. Absolutely. Michael, tell me just before we close a little bit about your recovery routine. I'm a recovery routine nerd. So I love to learn about people's recovery routines. What does your recovery routine look like? Well, I love to go to meetings. So I go to, I'm fortunate here that we can, that there's a lot of meetings here. So I go to a lot of in, I have a very structured um, schedule at this time. I could probably go outside of that a little bit, <laughs> but I do have a very structured routine as far as what I do. I mean, um, right now I'm unemployed. So I wake up and I feel gratitude about being able to wake up and the people in the program have taught me to start my day off. Um, and I'm sure you've heard this a lot and start my day off with a prayer and feeling grateful and, and ask for guidance throughout the day. And so I'm doing a lot of job searching, but I'm doing, I'm hitting a lot of meetings. I have the time. So right now I'm opening up quite a few meetings in person, um, four of them, which is something that I probably need to cut back on as well. But right now I have the time and then I, I do spend a lot of time on Zoom too on other meetings as well because of the lack of indigenous mm. um, um, meetings. I'm able to access um, almost daily an indigenous meeting as well. But I go to my other meetings and see my other friends. Um, I, I connect with my sponsee on a, on a very regular basis. We go to meetings together. My sponsor I connect with on a very regular basis as well. So um, that's that's basically my recovery lifestyle. And in between, I'm, I feel grateful about having food in the house that I'm um, alive and that um, I'm able to um, live. I'm able to live a good life. What was the one thing that you heard early in your recovery that made a profound impact on you? Mm, boy, that's a good question. There's just so much. And I remember when I was in, in prison and they were bringing people from the outside into the prison that were in the programs and they were serving as speakers. And one of the speakers said, their name, they said, whatever, just, I'll just use my own name as an example, but they said, my name's, um, oh, I'm an alcoholic, and my problem is Mike. <laughs> so that, to me, I got a kick out of that. I, it made me laugh, but then it put things in perspective. I thought, 
you know, one day at a time for the first time in my life, I feel as though I am an alcoholic and I feel just wonderful just admitting that to myself. And, 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 and the, the problem is, is something that I can work on my own attitudes, my own perspectives, what I, how, how I act and how I don't act and my character defects. And then also as well, my strengths and the blessings that I, I needed work on that. I couldn't see the blessings when they told me to do a gratitude list i could only write down one or two things and now you give me a pen i could take all the paper that you got and you just continue to write a gratitude list. so i needed i needed to work on that and for me to hear that that really hit me and i just i got a kick out of it and that really put things in perspective i'm an alcoholic and my problem is this is is my outlook, is my attitude, is my, my acceptance or inability to accept my anger. Um, so th that really opened the door to, to a lot of inner work that the 12 steps were, were able to help me with. I, for one, Michael, am extraordinarily grateful that we were able to have such a tremendous discussion on your recovery story, but also so much about recovery in the indigenous community and some of the challenges and some of the ways that we can overcome those challenges. So Wambadi Gadeska, thank you so much. All right. Thank you for everything you're doing, Charlie, and getting things out. And I like, I like your style. You're carrying a powerful message. And I know that people are watching and listening. And it's really making a difference for the suffering addict and for those of us out here that are, are needing to hear some recovery. I mean, so I, I appreciate that as well. Thank you so much. Before we close, Michael shared with us a heartwarming story that is a true gift and a representation of what recovery can give us if we're willing to work for it. So listen up, won't you? Um, this is a story. It's it's all. I don't mean to brag her, but I just love to tell the story. And uh, when I was living on the reservation, see, in our Dakota, in our in our indigenous ways, um, my I have two nieces and a nephew. And in our traditional ways, I'm I'm seen and I have a role as their father. And there's I view them as my children. That's just tradition. And so. When they're with me, that's how I treat them. And so when you're with me, you're with, you're with Uncle Mike. You know, we'll just say Uncle. Uh, you're with Uncle Mike. And so when, we, when we, you're with Uncle Mike, you're with somebody that's sober. And so um, we're going to have some fun. We're going to have some sober fun. So the one time we were in the car, and, when, and you get to listen to whatever you want to listen to, some pop station, bubblegum music we turn it right on and then we're singing we're having good sober fun and we're just enjoying life and i wanted i want them to be able to have that in their life i don't want them to grow up the way that i grew up and but it's not all fun and games right because i need to know about you as as my niece as my nephew i want to know how you are doing in school i want to know what your goals are etc 
So I turn the music down a little bit and I start making my rounds like I always do. There's three of them. And I start in the back and I say, okay, how's school going? Do you have any goals? What do you want to be when you grow up? You know, I want them to know that somebody cares about, you know, who they want to be and who they are. And so I go around the room and we get to my nephew and he's one of the, he's one of the shyest ones. We call him Paw because Bear Paw, we call him Paw. And so I say, Paul, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he says something that I didn't quite hear, but I did hear. And it made me feel really uncomfortable. And I was scared of what he said. And so I, I remember driving and I kind of clenched the steering wheel and I kind of closed my eyes and looked down. And I was like, oh, my God, did he just say what he said? That, what he just said? Did I just hear him right? And then I remembered the promise that I had made. And I remembered that I even have a hard time with positive things and blessings into my life. I have had to learn how to accept those into my life. And so also I owe it to my nephew to hear what he said so that he can be truthful and have an expression of his own heart. And so I turned the music down and I really kind of with my clothes, my eyes closed and I say, Paul, what did you say you want to be when you grow up? Now, he's kind of shy. So my niece, who isn't as shy, she goes like this. She goes, he said he wants to be like you. <laughs> oh, and man. I, and I was like, oh, my God. Oh. I was like, holy cow. You know what? But at the same time, it was the principles of recovery that I have been applying to life. What a yeah. profound gift. Yes. Yes. I don't ever want to forget that. What a beautiful, beautiful gift. And what a beautiful gift you are giving to your nieces and nephews to be a good example of what recovery and what sobriety can look like. Yes. Yes. Thank you. If you want to reach out to Wambadi Gadeska, email the show at share at wayoutcast.com. We will make sure that he gets your message. Thank you, everybody out there in Way Out Podcast land for your ears. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, 
your sobriety date will.